0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Zoe Bell, a New Zealand actress, stunt double, and stunt coordinator whose credits include The Hateful Eight, Thor Ragnarok, and last year's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You can catch part one of our conversation right now on the podcast, where we talk about Zoe's beginnings in New Zealand working on Xena, her visit to Hollywood, and the meeting with Quentin Tarantino, which led to her being cast as Uma Thurman's stunt double for Kill Bill, why Tarantino insisted on making the stuns for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so period-accurate, and much more. But in part two, we focus on a wide range of topics, among them, Zoe's experience receiving the screenplay of 2007's Death Proof, written, directed, and shot by Quentin Tarantino, who offered her the opportunity to become a leading actress and play herself, stuntwoman Zoe Bell, in the movie. Tarantino would direct her on set and memories from shooting the iconic car chase that finds Zoe crawling on the hood of a car as it speeds at 90 miles an hour, how the experience of that film influenced the future choices in her acting career, taking roles like Six Horse Judy in The Hateful Eight, and starring in Oblivion with Tom Cruise, the experience of being offered to stunt coordinate and act in last year's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and much more. As always, if you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. You can learn more about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by enjoying previous episodes on the podcast, where we sit down with the film's assistant director, Bill Clark, and the Oscar-winning production designer, Barbara Ling. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. So we left things off last time talking about your experience breaking your back. We were talking about the process of how important it is to learn from mistakes earlier in your career as opposed to later. So we talked about Kill Bill. We talked about Xena. And I was going to shoot straight into Death Proof because that was, from my understanding, that was your first true experience as a lead actress, let alone in a Tarantino film. And you're literally playing yourself. woman Zoe Bell, down to the character name, the language, the anecdotes. So I don't know. That kind of blows my mind because in hindsight, as unconventional as this big role must
1: have been, I'm sure it made sense at the time. What made it the right role for me at the time was that Quentin had written a script with me in it. And I have to admit when he first brought the script over and he kind of directed me to the page where Zoe comes in. The scene where she was originally introduced in the script isn't in the movie and it's basically where the girls come to the airport to to meet me and the description is literally cute as a bug's ear. Maybe it says New Zealand stuntwoman Zoe Bell or Zoe or whatever, but it definitely says cute as bug's ear, Zoe bounds off the plane or something. And I was like, you're using my, my, my name and my likeness? Like what's happening here? I was like, whoever you cast as this woman. First of all, she better be cool and she better be hot. And she better look like me so I can double her. You know, like, those are my three stipulations. And he sort of broke the news to me that that I would be playing it. And, like, I didn't have aspirations of being an actor. I mean, I definitely, my whole life I've kind of been a performer and I used to love watching bloopers and I used to dream of having that be my job, which is ironic because now I kick ass instead of making people laugh, but whatever. But it never occurred to me that becoming an actor was kind of a furthering of that. To be honest, by the time Quentin... I was going to say, ask me to be in this movie, he didn't really, he just sort of presented it and was like, so this is happening. <laughs> you know? I think the thought of acting scared me more then than it probably did back when I was really young. To some degree, I kind of knew what it took because I'd been around it a lot. I'd also become this quite jock, tomboy, stunt man of a woman. It was the opposite of being emotional. It was the opposite of being vul- openly vulnerable. It was the opposite of being emotionally honest in front of the camera. I was just there to like look like a badass. I'll tell you, the thought of that much dialogue, that much camera time on my face and it being on a Tarantino movie, the concept of it scared me more than any of the more extreme stunts I've done in my career. Cause I didn't have a process for that. Like someone says, we need you to come off this building. It's 22 stories. You're going to be wrapped in the thing and you're going to pull a ripcord and blah, blah, blah. Initially I'm like, holy shit. Okay. That's right. Okay. But then I've got a process, right? I've got the tools to go. If I can do this, then that leads me to that, and if I know I can do that, then that means that this I'm safe under there and if that means, like I can, I've got a process for that that's kind of natural to me at this point. When it comes to right, let's figure out how you emotionally get from here to there. I'm like, what? Emotionally what? No, no, I don't do emotions. <laughs> it's not I don't know what that means and camera on my face is really confronting. When you've spent your career I know, I know where the camera is at all times because my job is to avoid it. The first like little while of having camera on face was like staring at someone in the eyes directly that you don't know that well and just having to hold it. Like it's fucking, it's awkward and it makes you feel really self-conscious and you, my face would twitch and I'd be like, I don't know what part of my face is twitching. I don't know how to stop it. I'm suddenly so aware of everything that I'm doing. So to say that it was, seemed like the right role to take at the time is to sort of imagine that I had more not more say, that I had more idea of what was going on for me at the time. At the time, I knew how much of an honor it was. When he sat me down and talked about the character, basically how he relaxed me or talked me into it, in his words, was we went out for beers and he described the ship's mast sequence to me. And that was kind of when I went... I fucking write a minute, you know, like, that sounds amazing, we, we we can make this happen, and then, and and I very much said to him, I was like, look, I've no, I I do not want to be the girl who fucks up a Tarantino movie, because you've put me in a spot that I'm not qualified to be in, and I was, you know, like, who should I go to, should I go to acting coaches, and what do I do, and how do I, like, you have to give me a process, because I don't have one for this, and he base basically what he was saying is, you lean on my process, what he said literally was, don't go to acting coaches, I know what You have and I know what I want and I know how to get it from you. What I need from you is for you to learn the script inside out. I want you to know every line of dialogue, backwards and forwards, a hundred different ways and everybody's. And I was like, will do. My sole identity in in the work world was being a stunt woman, and switching to being an actor for me was like drastic. For a lot of people, it's, you know, comedians and singers and dancers. There's often, they're already, there's some emotional attachment To the thing that's already going on in there. My only emotional attachment to my work is sort of in the physical. I'm not always kicking ass. Sometimes I'm getting my ass kicked. Sometimes I'm flying. Sometimes I'm flipping. But you know, there's something about it that's like for a long time, I didn't attach that much emotion to it.
0: Well, you were talking about last time where we left things off in regards to Kill Bill being the first experience where Quentin was like, you become part of the character and the motivation shouldn't just be, you know, hitting your marks Yeah. and thinking about the wires and the rigors and all of that. For those two and a half seconds, you are the character.
1: Right, and th- even then, when that made sense to me, there was a safety in me going, oh, I'm inhabiting this character that exists already on Death Proof because it's me. It was interesting. I spoke to a lot of different actors, friends of mine, and just was like, how do you act? What does that mean? Because I know what it feels like when you're watching someone who's faking it, and it's really awkward and uncomfortable, and it's not a fun experience for the viewer, you know. Sure, it's not a fun experience for the actor either if you, when you're fake, I know it's not. When you're faking it, it's horrible. And one of my friends, actually quite a few of them were like, to be honest, when you're acting yourself is one of the harder things to do. Now, that comes from experienced actors, so I I didn't have any point of reference. But I think since then, there is something about when you're acting as a character that is unlike yourself, you find where you can bleed yourself into it, but the shape of the vessel already exists, and then you find where you can explore it and push out into it. When you're playing yourself, for me, it was a bit like, a, it's myself, but none of the words are mine. I haven't come up with any of them. I'm doing stuff that I have have never done. I know stuff about things that I know nothing about in real life. You know, so it was this kind of, it was tricky. I mean, the girls supporting me, like Ro and Mary and Tracy, particularly those three, because that's who I spent most of my time with. They were so supportive. And so I think they thought it was quite adorable that me being the little ass kicker was suddenly, you know, trying to do dialogue and stuff, but they would come to my room whenever I called them. I was like, can you guys come and run lines with me? I don't know. And Quentin, he did, he knew how to, I mean, this is one example of, there's a shot in the movie where we pop the, you know, what country am I in? The hood, the bonnet of this car that we're about to take out. And I think the line is like fucking legendary mate or something, which he had taken from experience on Kill Bill where something had happened. I'd gone oh, fucking legendary mate. So, when we were doing it, I was so self conscious. I was like, yeah, fucking legendary. I just, and I knew I was feeling self conscious, which made me feel even more self conscious. It's just this weird. But he walked up to me and he was like, look, here's the thing. You know, when we were in China and we were shooting Kill Bill and we'd been working 18 hours in the House of Blue Leaves and we had second meal and it was pizza? And I was like, oh, fuck. I to-, and I totally remember that moment because I was like, pizza? Two o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. And he was like, do you remember what you said? I was like, Nope, that was like fourteen years ago, or whatever. He was like, you said fucking legendary, mate. And I was like. Oh, so in the movie now, when I'm popping that thing, I'm imagining pizza. Like, that's how good a director he is. And because I didn't have the tools of an educated actor, so he gave me tools. When we were doing the sitting around the table thing, he gave me crackers to eat, and he was like, imagine you're really hungover. You know when you first got off a plane and you've drunk all the way through and it felt really good until the last two hours, and now you get off the plane and it's 10 o'clock in the morning, you've got a whole day to do? I was like, yes. He's like, just imagine that and nibble on these crackers. I was like, all right. So he knew how to and when to distract me, when to give me the what if or as ifs. I didn't have any of that. So Zoe, you thought about what you going to do first? It just so mm. happens, I know exactly what I want to do. Oh really? And what would that be? To me, there's no point in being in America unless you can drive a Detroit muscle car. And I want to drive a Dodge Challenger. (laughs) Fuck me swinging balls out. (laughs) Um, Well, I guess we can talk to Transpo, but does it have to be a Dodge Challenger? Not just that. It has to be a 1970 Dodge Challenger with a 440 engine. Oh, in the fuck do you expect to do that? No worries, mate. I've got it all worked out. When I knew I was coming here, I went (laughs) online and found out that the local paper here in Tennessee is the Lebanon new sentinel so back home i'm sorry where's home australia right mm. what do you mean by that mate it's always from new zealand and you never i repeat never call a kiwi an aussie that is unless you want your ask kicked.
0: So I was going through the movie and I was like, well, if there's one sequence we definitely got to talk about is the car chase and the section specifically when you're strapped on the hood. I'm saying strapped without really knowing if there's any kind of safety. Well, we'll get to that. But about that specific stunt, this is what you had to say. Quote, most times you can't shoot a stunt through the one angle that sells and makes it incredible because the audience would see the stunt double's face and realize it's not the actress. For that chase in Death Proof, what used to be the one reason that forces you to lose a shot was now the reason that made it priceless people could see it was me close quote again we talked about you, you pick good
1: uh, quotes the by the way i'm just going to i'm just going to oh, have I... you like send me a <laughs> list of my best quotes and then i'm just going to you i'm just going to reuse them over and over
0: <laughs> but again like what, what to me is the genius is like understanding that there's going to be no stunt doubles for any of the scenes you're going to be in Buddy Joe Hooker, by the way, described you as, quote, the Steve McQueen of female actresses, close quote, which is a great way of describing it. That's like my dad's favorite
1: quote ever because Steve McQueen is like his fave.
0: So I was just wondering what kind of precautions you could really take in a scene like that. And with limited space, what I think is interesting on a visual level of that stunt is the fact that you have very limited space to move around and you got to try and make that last a whole sequence.
1: The progression of it was... I mean, we initially started off in a car park on a parked car, figuring out where we could put me that gave me as the stunt performer <laughs> prior to me being the actor where I can have the most freedom and be safe. So I, I I, I'm I, loath to talk too much about how we safetied because the movie magic of it is deeply important to a myself, but also out of respect for Quentin and, and, and the way that he likes to make movies just for the record, there was a safety. I had a safety line and basically I switched where I wanted it on my body so that I gave me the most freedom to make it look like I wasn't attached to the car. And then we worked with the rigging. Basically I had sort of my lock off point. That was as far as I could come off either side or the front. And I would push those limits, so there was some back and forth. With I was like, "Give me another couple of inches." They're like, "Fuck no," because you're going to use it. I'm like, "Yeah, give me those inches. I know where they are now." So it was a give and take from the beginning through to the end. By the end, we all knew each other better and we trust each other in the equipment and the movement. And we, you know, it becomes a little bit more like a that unspoken communication where limits can be pushed more safely by the end than they ever could have been at the beginning. And so we were all quite respectful of that. Jeff National, the stunt coordinator, basically started me in the car park and was like, show me how far you think you want to go. And so I did, and my mistake was I showed him a little bit too much at the beginning. He was like, cool, so I'm going to take a foot off of that. And I was like, what, no, you know? I mean, it was kind of a sweet process, really. In terms of the storyline of it, that was all Quentin with like, start on the tops. St- I don't want to say anything in case people haven't seen the movie. Um, although, if you haven't seen the movie, Sweet shit out.
0: Guys, come on, catch on. It's been a while. Keep up, keep up.
1: The small amount of space wasn't limiting for me emotionally because it was small, so technically it felt safe, but the fact that it was small is what made it feel dangerous. Like, the edge of my safety was so close at all times that now as the actor, that wasn't limiting at all. It was the opposite. I was like, oh, shit, I felt my foot go. I know where that that tire is right there, and that thing's spinning. I know where the front is. I know where the, you know, like, it became my own little... um,
0: It's an arena you can play in. Yeah, completely. If you know the limitations, it gives you more creativity on, on how to use them.
1: Tracy Toms is the actress who's playing Kim. Tracy Dashnell, who was the stunt coordinator jeff national's wife was doubling tracy so she's the one driving so it was a lot of me and her like she'll tell you it was more terrifying for her at all times than it ever was for me and i hate to say this out of respect for her but that's how it, that's how it needs to be she should be the one that understands at all times how dangerous this is and i as the actor need to be able to give that fear over to her so that i can pretend scare rather than actually be scared you know <laughs> like It's really interesting how real life and movie life, like I was going through, in the middle of that sequence, my long-term boyfriend at the time broke up with me via email, and (laughs) so there's there's one scene in there where where I'm like bawling, and I'm like, oh, I remember that day, (laughs) and Quentin even said to me, he was like, I don't know what's going on with you today, but we're actually going to reshoot a couple of things, because... Whatever's coming up from you right now is really working. And I was like, cool, put my shades on in between every take. you know. Was like In hindsight, and it would never have happened this way, that happened at the end because basically Quentin's a smart filmmaker and he's like, if I'm going to kill her, I want to have got all the dialogue first. So we'll do all of that shit at the end. In hindsight, I had the power to ask for it and had the knowledge to ask for it. I would have said, can we do that sequence first? Because it was the perfect blending for me. It was super physical, which is what I'm completely comfortable doing, and highly emotional. I discovered the Zoe character in, in that sequence more profoundly and, and quickly in the first week of shooting that. than I'd Then like it's not even a regret, but I would love to revisit that character now. Do you know what I mean? Having got to the point of comfort with acting and stuff, I would love to revisit that.
0: We'll start the petition right away and let you know as soon as we get to 100,000 signatures. (laughs) I mean, it kind of makes sense. I remember, I think it was for the stunt in Raiders of the Lost Ark and there's Terry Leonard Mm. who's who's going under the truck. And it's like, to me, the relationship of the performer and the driver, it says more who you trust, Zoe, to be behind the wheel because that person may have even more responsibility than anyone else, especially in a scene where you're playing scared. I was interested in like trying to figure out, number one, how many days you guys had to shoot that But number two, what is the language? What is the safety language in regards to her understanding when you literally need the car to be stopped and when you're just playing the
1: character? Yeah, and I would love to speak to that because it's one of my favorites. It's actually one of my favorite things about being a stunt performer is the teamwork and the collaboration that's necessary for something like that. So, for example, me doing my part of that just by myself without Tracy, without Jeff, without Jamie in the back, who was kind of tallying my safety line, without Buddy Joe, without the camera crew that are in the camera car and the guy on the crane, like without all of those people, I am literally just a woman on the bonnet of a car that's stationary, rolling around on top of a car. There's nothing dangerous or scary or particularly talented about what I'm doing if it's just me. The only reason I get to push the limits like I do and make the kind of shots that scare me when I watch them now is because... I implicitly hand over my trust to Tracy, who's driving the car, Jeff Dashnell, obviously, who's coordinating the whole thing, the guy who's driving the camera car, Buddy Joe, who's driving, well, or Kurt, because Kurt's pretty fucking mean behind a wheel as well, but the guy who's in charge of the camera crane, because if that, I mean, at those speeds, if that thing doesn't move and it needs to, I'm not stopping it, and if I stop it, I'm... I'm not stopping it. <laughs> I'm probably getting destroyed by it. So there's that sequence is the perfect example of how the team is necessary to make the lead singer look like a rock star. And in that particular situation I happened to be the rock star, which is I was normally the bassist or the drummer or something. That's like where I'm normally sitting, but so to be the lead singer of that it was really cool to to experience what that felt like from the top looking into it. So in terms of my me and Tracy Dash communication. I can't explain it. There, there was definitely, I would thump on the, I would thump on the bonnet. She would thump on the window or the, you know, that's in the movie because it's what we would do, but I can't hear her yelling at me when I'm outside the car and we're going 80 miles an hour. She can't hear what I'm saying, especially when I'm acting and I'm doing all of that kind of stuff. But usually in those sorts of situations, I think if I'm fighting opposite someone or in some way we're speaking action language and the cameras are rolling, it's kind of like in a fire burn when you need to be put out, you lay down and you play dead. You stop acting, right? So there's something in that when someone drops character, that's when you your senses kind of pick up and you're like, oh, I need to be watching for something. So I think when Tracy felt me go into stunt girl, like, fuck this, I need to sort this out, that's when she knows that I'm... And I'd be really interested. I would love to sit in an interview with her and have her answer some of these questions too, but it just became an unspoken thing with, over over the I think it was a couple of weeks we shot that sequence. There would be times that she would give me a little heads up that she was going a certain way before she went a certain way. Cause then I, cause the thing with that sequence is if we're not in communication, it's not, I mean, A, there's safety, but there's also like, I need to know we're going that way so I can sell it.
0: Allow me to ask you a little bit since we stepped into it about your creative process as an actress and the way your selection of projects has evolved. Quote, I used to be hesitant about the term feminism because I was one of the boys. Being around them felt easier and safer, close quote. So I think like, to me, what's interesting, I was going back and studying all the roles you've played. Like there are plenty of examples where the roles were enriched by your, not only your gender, but the experience that was emotionally specific to you. So we just spoke about Death Proof, but I'm also thinking... About Camino, where the role was originally written for a male, you know, for listeners, you're also Six Horse Judy and Hateful Eight and Randy's wife's Janet and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you yell at Brad Pitt for wrecking your car. The list goes on and on, but when there's only so much time in a day in regards to the creative choices you've had for your career moving forward, how did your criteria evolve in regards to what pushes you to
1: accept or refuse a role as an actress? Oh, holy shit, that's a heavy one. Um, truth be told, absolute truth, took me a long time to recognize that I held the right to say no to stuff. I, for a long time, felt like I'm not even really an actor. I'm just a stunt girl who's kind of doing it. So if someone wants me in their movie and it's going to get their movie made, then who am I to say no? I felt like that about press. I felt like that about taking on jobs. I don't even need to name them. You could just probably go through my... IMDB and go oh that's probably one she's talking about and that's definitely one she's talking about but it took me a long time to get to the point where I was like oh I'm allowed to be picky about these things and actually the pickiness only came once I'd already reached that point where I was like oh I was feeling exploited by myself because I was agreeing to do stuff that I didn't really I didn't really feel a lot for something like Camino. Obviously, I've worked closely with Josh Waller before and Dan Noah. Like, I knew all of those guys. I loved the premise of it being a male war photographer that was on this mission and that it was a woman. And even when we were talking through it, I was like, don't even change the script that much. Let's just see what happens when the lens is female. And let's see what happens when the lens is a tomboy female. I'm likely to have been a war photographer. Like, I would fit that role. Let's see what happens with that. And Camino is one of those movies, too, where I'm like, I would love to have seen what happened with that movie if we had. Because we were strapped. Our resources were very limited. We were shooting around... Uh, It was Hateful Eight. I shot half of the movie in Hawaii and I got called back early for Hateful Eight. So we had to shut down production and then come back. So it was all, you know, all those stories you hear about those movies that you like. I mean, I literally had to look at the producer at one point and be like, I have to be on a plane like this weekend for the unforeseeable future, (laughs) like for the length of a Tarantino movie. Like we don't, you know. So we had to push the last half of that movie for six months or something. But so, yeah, the process of choosing... I think where the quote was probably meant to be leading me is a little bit like with something like *Rays*. *Rays* is a movie I'm deeply proud of because I was also quite creatively involved with the story and the characters and the action and all of that kind of stuff. And I just loved the way it turned out. That was the perfect example, and I think that's probably where that quote came from, was audiences were polarized people were like oh my god it's just like a feminist flag and other people were like oh my god it's the most sexist trope ever and I was like I hadn't considered any of that my biggest thing with that was I don't want a bunch of women fighting to the death because honor in my experience that's not really a a typical female trait and I'm meant to be one of the like toughest whatever women blah blah I'm not gonna kill another woman just for honor. Like you best give me a reason that's undeniable. Like it better be to save my brother's life, my mum or my dad's life. One of my, you know, like it best be that, or I'm not. I can't imagine watching someone die in my hands for any reason other than the most extreme has to. You know. So we brought that in, and then I was like, well, let's make the fights speak to where each of these women have come from. Let's like if someone's been a maternal their whole life, how do they deal with that? How If someone's been a soldier, how were they de- You know, so it became about the realism of female action was just some shit I hadn't really seen in movies. I hadn't really, and I hadn't done it. And I was like, if I haven't done it, let's fucking create it because I've done all kinds of female action. Like I've done, I've run the gamut. And if I'm feeling like there's not that much female, and this was a long time ago now, but female action out there that makes me want to cry when I watch this woman having to take another woman's life. Like, that's what it would be for me. I would be crying if I had to take another woman's life. Like, are you kidding me? I'd probably be throwing up. Like, instead of push-up bras and light waking up with perfect makeup on, and I'm going to take out 16 guys. Like, cool, done that. Been there, seen it. What I haven't seen is, you know... Sorry, I'm totally rambling. I feel this is what I'm sorry.
0: That's exactly what this is. It's it's a conversation, and to me, it's exposing. I think the interesting correlation between the thematic content and how your creative roles on these movies where. You are an actress and a stunt coordinator. In this case, you're an actress and sometimes even a producer of some kind. You are fully invested, so it's only fair that you demand to challenge the material because who better than you understands, you know, what action is like for a female performer?
1: Right. Well, and you know what's funny is I think what also happened was I get cast in a Tarantino movie. I remember my first meeting with agents. A friend of mine was like the assistant to an agent. He was like, I should meet with these people. I won't name them, but whatever. We walk into the office. We walk literally like down the spiral staircase to this like library with this big oak table in the middle. It's like all the walls. I'm like, are we shooting in here? Like this feels a little set up. And then there's seven guys all wearing some variation of like light pink or light blue shirts with ties a little bit too tight, like straight agent, just full agent garb and then two women. And they're all like kind of blowing a bit of smoke because I'm I'm literally one of the leads in the next Tarantino movie that we haven't even shot yet, right? And I'm, I have no idea what that means. I have no concept of what that means. And the questions are coming at me like, what do you wanna do and where do you see yourself and how do you, and I was just like, I haven't even shot this, like I might be fucking terrible I might hate it. And to be honest, I hadn't been in L.A. that long. I hadn't figured out the game. I had, you know, I was just like, I don't understand any of this stuff. So then come out of Death Proof and there's this weird window where they couldn't quite box me. They're like, she's a stunt woman, but she's an actress in a Tarantino movie, but she's not a real actress because she was playing herself. So she's, you know, so it was this weird and I didn't have the confidence or the wherewithal to be like, here's what I'm up to this is what I'm good at. This is what I want to do. This is how now I do. Then I didn't at, at all. So it was an interesting place to get to when roles are coming to you. There was a lot of really shitty roles coming to me is what I'm trying to get at. There was a lot of really bad action, a lot of really insulting female action. Like, And I don't mean insulting like personally, what well kind of, but poorly written, assuming the audience is really stupid. And just if there's a pair of tits on it then that'll sell it like that that kind of stuff, I was fielding a lot of that stuff I hadn't found a good representational relationship that would field that for me or that even agreed with me there was either people being like oh this is also below you we're gonna wait for something huge that I was like I don't deserve something huge that's never gonna happen for me or it was like oh you should do it it's a lead character and I'm like yeah but that's fucking tip ter- like I got 10 pages in and I was like that I'm too smart to read the rest of that and I'm not that smart, like that's like just terrible, you know? It's interesting to be asked these kinds of questions now because I basically, I, I kind of disappeared from acting for a little while. And for a couple of years I was directing, I, I did Thor. I was stunt doubling for the first time I was in 10 ask, years.
0: Ragnarok is only three years ago. Well, four, maybe when you shot it, but I was so, I saw her name up there and I was like, I'm sure there's a reason
1: she chose to go back so you were right, there was a reason for that. Because it had been 10 years since I'd been a stunt double at that point, I think. Fuck, no, it couldn't have been ten, seven, whatever. Tyker is a friend of mine who was directing, and that was like a massive film for him. But I am an eighteen team player, and I was like, if I can be there in any way and support, Ben Cook was the second unit director and stunt coordinator, who was one of the guys that taught me everything I know on Xena. And it was his first, I think it was his first second unit directing one of the other reasons I took the job was I was like Kate Blanchet. Yes, I will just—it's like acting class just to witness. Turns out she's also annoyingly wonderful and grounded, and she always smells good, and she always looks accidentally cool, and all of those other things as well. But you know, there was a whole bunch of reasons, and it was—it was an interesting choice because it was sort of the reverse kind of fearful that was like, shit, this used to be my comfort zone, and I am not in the kind of shape that I used to be people have all these expectations of me now. Like what if I can't live up to them? What if I can't fulfill them? It was literally, I think the first time in my career, I lost weight intentionally because I recognized my body wasn't responding the way I needed it to. Like if I'm in wires and I'm whipping myself around and my leg weighs five pounds more than my ligaments are used to, I lost weight so as to not get injured. I'm more agile when I'm lighter and more flexible and more fit. My body was literally like, I'm sorry, the last time you did this, you were what, 30? Cool. So now you're what? Yeah. Bitch, lose some weight. (laughs) Where are we? You have no idea. Hello, the goddess of death has invaded Asgard. Oh, I've missed this. And you and
0: I had a fight recently. Did I win? No, I won easily doesn't sound, right? Oh, uh, that's
1: true. This is the joy. I currently don't have an agent. I don't have a manager. I don't have a publicist. I haven't. What? I haven't for years because it got, I don't know if this is me being self-deprecating or super arrogant, but it's like, there's some part of me that's just too normal <laughs> to figure out how to make that relationship work. Now I think I could do it. Now I'm like, I know what I'm looking for. I know where we could take it. The market's kind of opened up. I think the badass stump woman who could be an actor, I think I got to that cusp, like, I think we said this in the interview, like, about four years too early, that then someone like Gina Carano, who's one of the biggest sweethearts on the fucking planet, I'm like, she's an anomaly. Like, you don't get to look like that, fight like that, and be as sweet and funny and cool as that. That's like might be some jealousy going on in there. Um, but no, I think I feel like I was like right before the wave. And I, you know, I used to give myself a hard time about it, about not understanding and not having the the courage to be like, no, you know what? I want these kinds of roles. And if you're not going to represent me this way, then I'm going to find someone who can. I didn't have that. I was like, fuck, maybe I'm unrepresentable. Maybe I don't fit. And it's not until recently when, Like, a combination of things happened. I'm probably going to jump ahead to one of your questions that you have lined up for later. Well, I was just going to say, on Once Upon a Time, watching Leo in the Western set was... It's funny, it's sort of... I I don't want to sound cliche, like, oh, he's just so brilliant and amazing. It just was really inspiring. It It was actually much more practical than that. It was like, I watched him go from being Leo to being this guy acting as this other guy but conflicted about who the guy that he was in the first, like in a split second and they would talk, say cut. And it was Leo again. And his commitment was so full and plentiful. Every time he went in, it was like 160%. And then when he came out, he came out and he had all the normal questions and how did you feel about it? But it was just that full commitment to the character looked so, not even that it was fun. It looked like the only way to act in a way that was completely fulfilling. Like, if you're going to act, do it 160%. Otherwise, there's always questions. There's always doubts. But he was just fucking in it, man. And I remember watching him going, it wasn't, and I don't mean that it wasn't a joy to watch because he was brilliant. It was. But it was actually like, the joy for me was, fuck, it must feel so good to just have that kind of abandon where you just jump in that fully, no concerns about what anyone else is thinking, fuck everybody else, about. no judgments, no concerns about how my performance is or whether it's working for the director or whether it's, you know, that all comes after cut. But in action, I literally watched that and I was like, oh fuck, if ever I'm gonna act again, that's how I'm gonna do it.
0: To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt, Double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff.
1: <laughs> Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. So
0: just to like close this chapter about performing and transitioning into coordinating, I want to ask you for a second about that. Quote, becoming a stone coordinator was a shift in perspective. It forced me to mature as now I couldn't just put someone else in as a performer until I had done all the checks. It was eye opening in the best possible way. Close quote. So we're slowly beginning to see more female coordinators, you know, Monique Ganderton. we talked about Sam Hargrave and Shauna Duggins. But for you, I wonder when did the concept of coordinating first enter your mind and what qualities, as you're training your own stunt teams, what qualities do you look for in a performer that tells you he or she is ready to become a coordinator?
1: Okay, so when the thoughts of coordinating first occurred to me on and off over the years forever, much longer ago, the thoughts occurred to me and then sort of dissipated like, that doesn't seem like that's a natural, easy... I, it's sort of one of those sort of dirty secrets that I have That's I think the expectation that people have is that I see walls that are in front of me and I bust them down. And it's not true. Sometimes there are walls that I bust down because the truth is I don't see them or they don't make sense to me that they're there, so I just walk through them. And then there are other walls that may not be there, but I perceive them to be there and they've stopped me in the past. Like, I didn't coordinate until once upon a time. That just was never a I was like Mary Albie was the first female stunt coordinator that I'd come across. Shauna Duggins was the first female coordinator I worked for on Alias, I think, and I remember being like – me- and I remember looking at her and going, man, I probably could have done that. It didn't occur to me that I could still do that. It was like somehow I had missed the boat or somehow I hadn't got that opportunity there for and, and it And it used to embarrass me or bum me out to have to admit out loud that I'm – susceptible to society rules but the truth is it did i was aware of like stunt coordinating being something that maybe i could get into but it just never seemed possible enough and that stopped me and it did you know and it wasn't let's be honest i wasn't like Fuck, i really want it and then someone said you can't and that stopped me it was just this sort of like inbuilt quiet nebulous voice that was like well it's probably not going to happen and if it does well you got to wait for an opportunity and the- And that was one of the things stepping into Once Upon a Time that was quite jarring was, as it appears to me, most of the time coordinators have been groomed to some degree. They have been assistant coordinators, you know, co-coordinators. I had had zero experience of that. So that for me was when Quentin was like, because he'd reached out to me and basically said, what do you think of this fight coordinator? Do you know this person and what do you think of them? And I was like... I do know them. I really dig them. They're talented, but I haven't spoken to them for ages. Let me do some research and I'll get back to you. And he wrote back and he was like, just out of curiosity, if I was considering you as a stunt coordinator, would you be interested? And I was like, fuck yes. If you have me as stunt coordinator, I will do everything in my power to make you proud and keep everyone safe and you will never regret it. But until then, I had never really, I was like, you can do this. You can do the best job. You can make it so that there was no one better for the job. I didn't believe it at first.
0: Again, let's transition into talking about Once Upon a Time. Like, to me, what's interesting about Once Upon a Time is because you're trying to make things, I read, that you're trying to make sense, like, period appropriate. So what that, might translate to in, like, having a lot less wires and having a lot more paths. Let's go back to talking about Melody Ranch and the Bounty Law section from the beginning, which Bill was telling us was literally in the first portion of the shoot because Leo's finding his character and it's his past. About that section, you have this to say, quote, Balcony Falls, like the one in the Bounty Law opening, were shot as authentically to the old school as possible. It was exciting opportunity to step outside of the polished, flawless action and just get a little more rough and tumble again. Close quote. So do you want to talk about how that Melody Ranch portion in the beginning was? And to me, there is a simple, primal, fucked up simplicity to audience members enjoying watching someone take a hard hit.
1: Why do you think that is? I have an internal battle around this stuff. I don't think it's the hard hit. I think it's the authenticity. This is why the death-proof sequence affected people the way it did. There's no denying that the person that we have established some kind of emotional relationship with on screen is the person in jeopardy. There's something about that old-school way that is, there's no CGI, there is no double, there is no faking it. And audiences, whether educated or not, I feel like intrinsically understand that or feel it. So there's two things. with The Balcony Fall is sort of the perfect, for me, it's like the perfect symbolism of, of all of that. We're shooting this movie in a time where we have wires at our disposal, we have wire removal, we have all of these technologies that can keep our players safe. <laughs> and with that can come a kind of disconnection, especially if it's in the context of a movie that is quite realistic. Like if you're if you're working on Avatar, of course you're already in this heightened sort of it, the context of that is such that the rules of that world allow that sort of f- hovering, flying, floating feeling. Right? Hong Kong films, same sort of thing. Like it's all it's all contextual. Also, those guys take a spanking no matter what. So like you know that that shit's for real, but. The balcony fall for me was a couple of things. One, I knew if I showed Quentin something on wires, it wouldn't be in the movie. Because that's he's putting it in the movie as a shout-out to the old school, as a shout-out to what moved him back in the day, as a shout-out to what he knows people like myself and my team are capable of. And he's trusting me to do that safely. And I honestly believe if I went to him and said, look, we rehearsed it and here are the tapes and here's what I found. (laughs) The tapes, that's old school. Here's the footage and and I don't feel comfortable doing it, I don't believe I can do it safely, he would have removed it. And that would have just been it. I also believe if I had have said, this is it, it's fucking high tech, and it's really cool. We've got wires, and blah, 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 blah. No one's going to get it. We could do it 500 times, but it's on wires. He wouldn't have even looked at it. He would have removed it because that negates the whole purpose of it being in there to some degree. Not the, Not the safety, the sort of the shout out. Also for me, like, Zena and Hercules, we were exploring and experimenting with stuff like that all the time. And, and one of the parts of planning that sequence for me, the Balcony 4, was we went out to set me and Rob and who else? we had Zach and Sam. And I, I was like, put me up there. And they put me up there and I looked down and I was like, OK, remember back to when I was a performer? And I was like, I would give this a go. And I would give this a go as the 40-year-old woman that I am. I would give this a go as the as the stunt person who's been doing this shit since she was 18. Not like, fuck yeah, I'd give this a go. But like, I can imagine working through this and making this possible and me doing it. So if that's the case, I just need to find the right person to step in there that I, A, trust is physically capable. B, has the intelligence, but also the balls to... Tell me if he's he is not comfortable or he like I want someone who can communicate with me. I don't want someone who's just like yes ma'am, yes ma'am, yes ma'am. Because I'm like no, if you keep yes ma'aming me, you're just gonna end up hurt and then you're no good to me. I need I need your feedback, you know. And Rob is awesome with that because he, Rob Alonso is just first of all he's a legend in his own right. He's also one of the most sort of emotionally generous men I know, which is so relieving to find stunt coordinators that have that but he was definitely like we should use wires like we've got the technology it's our responsibility we should and I was like I know but I really want how about we do both I want to explore this we'll do this and he was like fuck yeah let's do it so once we were all on board then it became exciting for me it was exciting for Rob it was exciting for Corey who was the guy who ended up doing the fall. it became that like shout out to the old like we all felt that sense of giving homage
0: and it trickles because beyond you, it's hard to cut you off, but it's like that to me is even Quentin stepping on the, you know, on the set, whether it's Universal or Melody and being like, this is where they shot smoke." Beyond what the audience can perceive, there is emotional authenticity for every single department head working on the movie. Yes,
1: he demands that. Yeah. And that's, that's, this is one of those points of contention when you're talking about Quentin for a lot of people is, is this this sort of power trip? And it's like, no, he demands the thing that makes him love movies. That's what he demands. And so if that makes sense to you, you want to give that because that's what makes me like I literally when I stood on top of that roof looking down the balcony, the fact that I was imagining myself doing it, that took me back. And I was like, fuck, I used to be that person. I can be that. that," Like, I don't know. There's something beautiful about authentic in camera, practical, real shit happening that audiences, whether they like it or not, get it. And I, I don't know. I agree with you. I so appreciate that. I so love it. About that,
0: let me ask you about a deleted bar fight scene that I may or may not have heard about. Quote, there was one sequence that ended up not making the film, but it was very much a haymaker type fight and a bar brawl, flying over tables and crashing over the bar. We still wanted the connections to look solid, and we still want to look painful, but we were playing into the heightening sort of slapstick of that time in that particular sequence. Close quote. And speaking of slapstick, oh my God, talk about western and, and fights and chairs and glass and all that stuff. Right, and the shit that, 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 that shit?
1: used to be that used to be the height of reality, and then you get twenty years on, and you look back, and you're like, ah. It's so slapstick, but it wasn't slapstick at the t- you know like all of that stuff. Did you guys get to shoot it? No, oh. no. And if ever and if ever Quentin changes his mind about everything that means anything to him, I think I still have footage of us rehearsing it. And I'm like, oh. it was, and he loved it. And there was, a, to my understanding, I think we were just sort of time crunched, and it was always one of those icing. It's gravy, you know, but we had so much fun doing it because we were revisiting. I mean, you know those ones when you're in, like, the bar or the brothel and people are flying over banisters and they're being slid down bars and smashing through bottles and, you know. We had a lot of fun choreographing that one. And, and, and I think he really dug it too. Like, I think we all really enjoyed it. And here's the other joy of, of being a part of a movie-making process with someone like Quentin who loves making movies but he really loves the process I think in his experience, and I'm speaking for him, so whatever, but our choreographing it, our researching it, our kind of working through it, showing him the love of doing all of that kind of fed all the pieces it needed to. And if it doesn't make the movie a better movie, then it doesn't need to be there. But in terms of the process of movie making, we all had that experience and we all fucking loved it. So it's not a waste.
0: I will begin petition signing on that too, by the way. (laughs) Let me begin wrapping things up by asking you my last question of Once Upon a Time, which is the fight inside a Rick Dalton's house. If you're going in with a fight with Cliff Booth, you gotta rehearse, rehearse, show the tapes and agree. And yet it sounds like Quentin is ready to challenge the material and reshuffle all the cards on the day. If something doesn't feel right, he may be the first one to be like, we gotta figure something else out. And from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was the case with the fight where you just had to come up with something new. So how much did the fight sequence evolve uh, in Rick Dalton's house from from conception to shooting and again we talked about the bar fight and using glass and windows and banisters and balconies. These to me are great elements. You're taking an environment around you. The telephone, the stone fireplace the glass posters and you Zoe are using these as tools for a creative choreography for Cliff to smash these poor guys Well see so everywhere. here's
1: the here's the where I, I thank you for the credit and I will take it where it's due. This is one of those moments where it's like we're Robin and I did well was prep right so we prepped everything because I know this is the finale fight I know up until now in the film shit has yet to get bloody so there's a good chance that that's going to happen in the sequence I know that we want bulldog stuff in there and that bulldog stuff takes uh sorry pitbull stuff takes rehearsals right? Like you can't just put a pit bull in there and be like, well, we'll just like play it by ear." I know that there is going to be a little bit of play it by ear with all the other stuff. So my team is someone that I know I can rely on to kind of pick up where we're going whenever we're going at the same speed that I'm giving it out. I also, Rob and I trained the actors and the doubles to cater for a massive in-depth fight, including Brad knowing that it could get trimmed down or it could... So you kind of of rehearse. It's different with every creative, right? It's different with every director. Some people are super specific and they want that shit to be the same every single take from the beginning to the end. They know what it is. Quentin, what I will say about Quentin is he has the innate ability to be spontaneous, which is, I think, one of the major qualities of him as a filmmaker is that combined with his brilliance means that when there's a problem sometimes a more amazing shit comes out of it than what was amazing in the first place. What I will speak to and what I witnessed and recognized in this process was I was constantly trying to kind of lock him into some choreography so that we could perfect it. Quentin's process seems to be kind of about what's right in front of him and then that influences what comes after it, right? Which is why shooting chronologically is awesome if you can. By the time we finally got towards where we were getting to the fight, and there was a bunch of, like, my biggest concern was I don't know what he's going to want to smash her into. <laughs> like, I knew just by hearing him speak, I could visually see that it was like Cliff just, like, smash, bang, cradling, just, like, fucking her up against all kinds of uncomfortable surfaces. But it cost money to make each of those surfaces smashable to a human. You know, like if it's a dummy, you can smash him against anything. So I had to kind of imagine where I thought he might go and what might tickle his fancy and what on the day he might go, oh, you know what would be amazing? And me be like, oh, that thing, thank God I got that safety. In my role, I don't want to say, no, you can't do that. I never want to say, no, you can't do that. I'd rather be able to go, do you know what would be cooler? Or how about this, you know? But for Quentin, it was basically, the shooting of the whole movie led him to this sequence. And the sequence in particular, especially with Quentin, when you're talking about emotional action, Quentin's action is never superfluous. Like, he doesn't do a fight just for the sake of seeing a chick fuck up a bunch of guys or to show his hero being tough. It always speaks to the journey of that character or the characters that are involved. And I think it just had taken him to shoot the movie and see the movie as he was shooting it to get to the point where he was like, well, now that I have all of this here, that means that this fight needs to be this. And the fight that we ended up with was emotionally and story-wise really similar to what was scripted. Choreography-wise, it was vastly different to what we had originally come up with. And, you know, that's also part of it. It's like we we choreograph as much as we can plus so that he can then pick and choose and what sort of fits his storyline the best. It, It was a joy to witness two things. It was a joy to witness him suddenly go, I know exactly what needs to happen. And the minute he knew what needed to happen, he communicated it in a way that I just we all just understood it. it made sense, and and the other joy was the work that we had all put in meant that none of what the ideas that he had were impossible. We could do all of them. So it was just like, cool, we may have scraped ninety percent of what we worked on, but the ten percent fits. we can incorporate everything that you want, all of that is doable, all that you're dreaming can happen. And it was one of those things that when I, for me watching that sequence in the final edit, I was just like, that is how he described it to me. Like when he finally had it in his head, like this is how I see it. I was like, I totally get it. I think that's the thing. I feel like if you're in the role of director or or second unit director, if you know what you want and you can get clear on your vision, it's sort of each head of department. Like what makes me proud is when someone goes, I want this and they paint a picture in my head and I go, do you know what's awesome? <laughs> my team is fully prepped for that. We can make that happen. That's, that's me doing my job. You know what I mean? And, and, and that includes me giving ideas and inspirations and all of those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, if my department is prepped and the sort of all the sister departments that we've all been in conversation with trying to imagine what he might come up with, if we're in a position to realize that vision on the day, that's the magic happening. That's that's it. And God yeah. bless him, because coming up with all that shit is no small feat.
0: Oh, I know you. I know all three of you. Yeah, Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch, yeah. Woo! I don't know your name, but I remember that hair. And you, I remember your white little face. And you were on a horsey. Yeah uh you are i'm the
1: devil and i'm here to do the devil's business
0: no i was dumber than that something like rex Cut
1: you down, text. Text. the moment where he's smashing your face into the phone for example like the stunt double kim is dear friend of mine i had had this whole personal experience with someone very close to me having a brain injury like very 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 recently to when we were shooting that and it was a very it was a very sensitive weird moment for me on set where I and this is one of those moments right this is how I know I hired the right persons we did it a couple of times and there was one hit that didn't work quite the way I wanted it to and if I was her I would have wanted another go and I walked up to her and I was like Kim this is amazing and we've smashed the fuck out of you and Quentin loves it and we're good to move on I know the last hit on that take If you watch it in the movie and I haven't given you this opportunity, you'll be angry at me. Do you want another opportunity? Are you okay? I trust you implicitly to tell me what's best for you right now because you're the only one who knows. And she looked at me and she was like, how many more phones are there? I was like, one. She goes, I want to do it. I was like, are you good to do it? She was like, yeah. And I felt completely comfortable. And I went to Quentin and I was like, we have one more phone. I didn't love the last hit of that. Kimberly is totally down and wants to do it again, if you want another one, it's there. And he was like, really? Because I felt it. It went a bit flat at the end. And I was like, yeah, exactly. And he was like, is she okay? And I was like, yeah. I had no qualms because I knew she would tell me the truth. If I doubted for a second that my player could be honest with me, I would never have said that to him. I would have just moved on because I'm not going to fuck up someone because they don't know how to say no to me. You know what I mean? Like they could yeah. have said no to me and they, and Quentin would have never known. She could have said no and he would have never known that that had come from her. When we watch the movie now, I'm like, that's the last shot. He used the last shot and she fucking wore it all three hits in a row and it makes that, because then you go straight into the poster and it's like the energy's there, it's all, you know, and then if you once you get to the dummy on the fireplace, who gives a fuck because you're all in at that point, you know. I really think that's the fine line as a stunt coordinator is making sure the emotional story fucking carries and keeping people safe as you do it. That's the crux of it that I experienced on that movie.
0: To me, what's interesting about the hierarchy on set is that not only performers are receiving pressure from coordinators, likewise, sometimes coordinators are pressured by producers saying- Of course. If you don't execute this, you know- Oh, it goes, it's all, like, the it goes all, all the
1: way up. It goes all the way up. I had a moment with Quentin where I had said something like, oh, something about safety line. And he looked at me and he was like, I don't know about safety. And I was like, ah, fuck. Insight as a double. I had never spoken to him about my safety. I just took care of it and we dealt with it because that, that literally is not his job. That literally is my job. And I had that moment where I was like, ah, oh, switch from stunt double to stunt coordinator. I was like, you tell me what you want. I reimagine it with the safety involved and I present it to you. And if you don't like it, I imagine something else with safety involved. But the safety is not his concern. It should never be his concern. It should be the producer's and it should be mine. And I rely on my team the same way. Like, I'm the producer of my team. It should be mine. And y'all need to be honest with me and qualified to have that conversation with me where I'm not risking your life.
0: Before I forget, we mentioned we were going to talk about
1: Janet. I love Uh, Janet. Could you wait? So really quickly, was
0: Kurt going to be the only one in that sequence? And then the character of Janet came in?
1: Yeah, so... I emailed Quentin the other day. I was like, I keep getting asked about this and I don't want to, I want to make sure I'm answering the way that you would be like stoked about. But basically the Janet is mentioned in the script. So Randy always has a wife whose name is Janet and and Cliff should avoid her. Right. That, that's the only mention is my wife doesn't like you just steer clear of Janet. So when we were choreographing these fights and I was sort of sitting down with Quentin and showing him the sort of the rehearsals and the shape of the fights that we'd got, blah, blah, blah. And at one point he was like, you know, I think... I think Randy needs to come in and break up this fight. I was like, "Oh my god, that's fucking great!" Because he came up with that idea, and then I was like, "Cool," because then we can, you know. So when we were filming that version of the fight, I was like, "Yo, Zach, who was Brad's double? I was like, obviously you be Brad, Brian, you be Mike, and Rob, I'll have you film, but I am definitely going to be Kurt. So I'm I'm going to be Randy, <laughs> and I came in doing my best, Kurt Russell. I was like, "Wow, wow, what?" you know we did this whole thing and it was part of that thing because I know if I just give Quentin like a generic well here's the thing I'm not going to show him how to shoot the fight because that's definitely his department and if I just give him a really cut and dry version of the fight he's gonna look at it and be like um I'm bored why am I watching this if we've got character in there and we're acting and you know and so I just thought he'd get a kick out of me being Kurt and I hoped so because I really did get a kick out of it on the day I don't know exactly what happened with the scheduling, but Kurt wasn't there when we started shooting this fight and we were shooting so much of it as one is that we kind of got through to the end of the fight much more abruptly than we expected to, and Kurt wasn't there. And my memory was that I could see Quentin kind of rubbing his forehead, doing the thinking, like, okay, how are we working our way around this? And my intention was to just sort of break the ice and kind of, like, alleviate a little bit of stress, and I walked up to him, and I made some bad Kurt with boobs kind of a joke, and and he looked at me and was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking, with, like, completely serious director Quentin face, and I was like, uh, wait, what? No, that was meant... I was meant to elicit a laugh out of that, you know. And he called Bill over, who you've now I realize now you've interviewed. He was like, Bill, we need to get Zoe in costume and makeup. She's going to be Janet. And Bill looked at me and I was like, bro, this is not, I had no, this is, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. So it was on the day. And on that day, I came in and did the, whoa, 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 what the fuck? And we broke up the fight. And then we came to set the next day. Kurt was present and Quentin had written Sort of like three a three page scene that is the scene in the movie. And it's a little bit longer in the script as well, well in the handwritten scenes that he'd written. And he basically was like, right, so this is it. So then I'm in the scene for the next three days. At first I thought I was just gonna be like, wow, wow, wow. And then Kurt was gonna come in and the whole thing was just gonna be like, I'd be in the background being like, you know, angry. And I walked up to Quentin on the last day that we shot that scene. So it was all handwritten these three scenes, and I had the printout handwritten. I was like, don't make me feel like a dick about this, but. Will you just sign the scene for me, please? Because basically, I just shared the camera with Bruce Lee, Kurt Russell, and Brad Pitt, and I told Brad Pitt to get fucked. And you were directing me, and I kind of need some proof of that. And he was like, well, no, I'm not gonna sign it. And I was like, what? He was like, I'll do you one better. And he just handed me the three handwritten pages. So I have the three handwritten pages I <laughs> Whoa, 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 whoa. What the fuck is going on here? Hey, jackass, this is our series lead. What the fuck are you thinking?
0: Uh, you're right, Janet. I'm
1: sorry about that. Don't fucking Janet me, you prick. Hey. What's up, babe? What's up, Randy, is that your loser asshole, wife killing buddy boy here was beating the shit out of Bruce.
0: Hey, Randy. Cliff. What the fuck, man? Let me just say nobody beat the shit out of Bruce. It was a friendly contest. He barely touched me. I think that dent in the car says something different.
1: My God, what the fuck did you do to my car?
0: What the fuck did you do to her car? Well, I threw this little prick into it, but I did not know it was her car.
1: Get the wardrobe off, get your shit, and get
0: fucked! Janet! What? I will handle this.
1: fucking handle it, Randy!
0: Okay, my last question to you regards your legacy. Quote, I do this career because I love the work. I've learned how to play the game by my own set of rules, and I'm finally starting to figure it out. Close quote. So what has the conversation been like with yourself in regards to all of the work you have already produced and the work you're still looking to produce?
1: Ah, that quote's quite accurate. I mean, I think my last two years have, on a a very personal, just in my family life, have been quite challenging. I've had some deaths and losses and near deaths and just like a sandwich of some pretty tricky stuff that was all happening whilst Once Upon a Time was filming and then the premiere and... There was a lot of um a lot of stuff that was real enough that made me stop and go you know, I d I don't know. I always felt like I would hear people be like, Oh, I had this breakthrough and I had this moment of realization and then my life changed and I was always like, Oh, fuck off. I've been waiting for those my whole life and I never have any of them. And then <laughs> careful what you wish for. And then I had like eighteen months of just like back to back stuff that made me stop and go. The reality is there's things that I that mean the world to me and my career turns out is one of them and my career is one of them because of the relationships I've had the magic I've been a part of making the support I've been able to supply to someone who's creating magic and that's what I really want to do so moving forward it's a little bit like I know now I want to make people laugh I know now there are people out there that respect and love what I have been fortunate enough to do in a way that they want to work with me I used to always be sort of apologetic. Now I'm like, fuck, wait, you're good at that shit and you like what I do. How about we do the shit together? Like there's just a freedom that comes with, I don't know, a conversation with death is is, is a good way to get some clarity on what's kind of important and what real freedom looks like. And real freedom looks like none of it fucking matters anyway because we're all going to die. Like I don't want to be depressing, but not to no, finish no. on a real depressing note, but at the end of the day, if we're all going to die – and sort of disappear and everyone around you, At some, you're either going to die and disappear on someone or they're going to disappear and die on you. Why not then just be feeding into what feeds you and feeds others? And, and not to say like I'm flawless and now I'm just going to meditate and be grateful and create brilliance, but, but there is an element of like if I'm not going to appreciate what I'm worth now, I'm not worth anything. I completely devalue myself if I'm not going to sit in my value now. And, that, and it's a tricky one to wrap your head around, and, and, and I have to wrap my head around it probably every other week. <laughs> but, like, I love the work I do. I love the families that I have created and that have been created around me. I want to keep creating. It doesn't matter to me if it comes from me or through me or with me. But for me, there is a deep need for it to be grounded in authenticity. Whether it's comedy or action or a podcast or an interview or like, honestly, one of the reasons that I was like, let's do more of this is because I feel like there's an authentic conversation coming through this that is, otherwise, what's the fucking point? I don't want to do press where I'm just like answering the questions that you already know the answers to. And I'm really like, that is, it feeds me zero. And if it's feeding me zero, what I'm giving out isn't feeding anyone else really. I
0: think over the last 20 years, you have left behind an amazing body of work. I know this is honestly just the beginning. You have been so generous with your time. These are film schools in a bottle. This
1: is sharing a human connection. and I am so, so oh, grateful. You're so well-spoken. I'm so like, don't take this the wrong way. I'm really proud of you, Brande I am. Oh, shit. Really, I'm really impressed really and really proud. And There you have it, folks. Thank you to Zoe
0: for taking the time to call in from Colorado and for sharing her amazing story and to Eric Boss for doing the final mix on all of these episodes. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. Man, my daddy told me, get you all the love and you can